to Zechariah chapter 11. We've been working our way through this book as part of our theme for the year, Faithful in the Work. Haggai and Zechariah were two prophets that God used to encourage faithfulness in the work of rebuilding the temple as the captives of, of the Jews had come recently back from Babylon to rebuild their city. They began with the temple but the work languished under the oppression, and that's often how uh, it goes. We face it today. God's called us to do a work, but there's difficulties. There's opposition and oppression, and the work in our lives and our families and our churches often languishes, and we need to be reminded to be faithful in the work. Hebrews, I'm sorry, Haggai chapter 2 verse 4 says, Yet now be strong and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. It is only because he is with us that we can be strong, that we can be faithful. We have no strength on our own, but we praise God for his. Zechariah has been an interesting book, and it's not a book that I would have thought that I would preach through on a Sunday morning. Uh, usually Sunday morning, you know, we, we, have, we have a lot of guests come in, and, and uh, you don't always know how much Bible uh, people have in their background, and this is, this is a little deeper, uh, so this has been uh, definitely a lot more to chew on. Hebrews 5 talks about the milk of the word versus the meat of the word, and, and uh, sometimes I just like my cookies and milk, I'll be honest with you. Just give me the cookies and milk and, and send me to bed. Uh, but then you end up with cookies and milk Christians, and we really need to be deeper than that. But we need to be able to chew on some meat, and Hebrews 5 talks about that. And so Zechariah gives us that. And you guys have stuck with me, and you've done great, and I, I trust that we'll continue to be able to plumb the depths <clears throat> and chew on some meat here this morning. Zechariah 11, <clears throat> we'll be looking at the prophecy of the shepherds, the prophecy of the shepherds. And before we get into it, let me just say, Zechariah 11 strikes a different tone than we've seen previously in this book. It's more somber in nature a little more, bit more sober. You can wonder, why is it even placed here? The whole book has been, though it's been a little uh, abstract at times, and the prophecy is a bit bizarre uh, and, and very picturesque and, and a lot of symbolic and, and so forth, uh, so symbolic language, it still has been a, a prophecy of hope. All of the prophecies in those first few visions in the book were all prophecies of hope that there would be a rebuilding of the temple, a rebuilding of the kingdom, a millennial kingdom, the enemies put out and all of his people regathered. And no matter how you cut this book, as you go through it, it's, it's, it's a prophecy, it's a book of hope to, to build the faith of the people to get back to the work, to encourage them. And you come to this chapter, and it seems a little bit anticlimactic, and you might, why, you might ask, why is there this sober interjection here? Well, chapter 11 details what will happen to the nation of Israel at their rejection of the Messiah at his first coming. And also, chapter 11 talks about the mistake that they make later, much later, in embracing the false Messiah just prior to Christ's second coming. And there's an obvious implication here for us to make today our identification of the true shepherd as our Messiah, our Savior, and our subsequent acceptance of him is of paramount importance. And we need to know his word, and we need to have discernment to not be tricked into the subtlety of Satan and the deceptions that he presents. 
Let's dive into this passage, the prophecy of the shepherds, and we'll see three different shepherds here this morning. First, you have the cry of the fleeing shepherds. The cry from the fleeing shepherds. This will be verses 1 through 3. Open thy doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour thy cedars. Howl, fir tree, for the cedar is fallen, because the mighty are spoiled. Howl, O ye oaks of Bashan, for the forest of the vintage is come down. There is a voice of the howling of the shepherds, for their glory is spoiled, a voice of the roaring of the young lions, for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. So you have this cry this wail of the fleeing shepherds in Jerusalem because of some impending judgment that's coming down. And you say, why? Why is this happening? Well, I'll go ahead quickly and give you my outline. There's the cry of the fleeing shepherds because of the condemnation of the faithful shepherd. And then ultimately they will coronate the wrong shepherd. And we'll see that in a moment. All right, so the cry of the fleeing shepherds, where we're starting here. So what's happening is in, in Zechariah 11, he's prophesying about what's going to happen when the Messiah comes and they reject him. And verses 1 through 3 says, basically, it ain't going to be good. It's not going to be pretty. What happens after you reject the Lord Jesus who comes at his first coming? Well, if Jesus came around 8030, Let's look at the timeline here. And in AD 70, what happened to Jerusalem? Everything got wiped out. In 63 BC, Pompey captured Jerusalem, but then the Jews were allowed to uh, continue religious practices peacefully. By 66 AD, the the first Jewish revolt takes place. The, The Jews didn't like to be under the thumb of anybody, right? And so in 66, this is after Jesus has come and gone, right? He's been crucified uh, and, and risen again and ascended. And we fast forward, or we, we go a few years out, and you have this first Jewish revolt. And initially, it's successful, but it's short-lived. In 69, Vespian is proclaimed emperor, emperor after he pushes the Jews back into the city of Jerusalem. And now they're pretty much contained there. And in AD 70, Titus comes and besieges Jerusalem, ultimately conquering it, and, and he, he raises that temple to the ground. And it has not been rebuilt since. And as it was Passover at this time, in April of, of, of 70, pilgrims were flocking to Jerusalem as they were known to do. It was Passover. They would come from everywhere, and, and they would be partaking in the Passover Well, what do you think the Romans did? The city is under siege. What would they do? Well, they're smart. They said, you can go right in. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All you pilgrims, go on in. But anybody who went in was not allowed to come back out. This did a couple of things for the Romans. It created more mouths to feed. The population went up big time. And that put stress on the whole system. There wasn't enough food to go around, not enough water. They're under siege, and also it made it so they didn't have to go hunt down these people. (laughs) Oh, you want to come in and die? Absolutely. We won't have to hunt you down. And so it was very convenient for the Romans, and they they locked them all in, and then they cut off all the supplies. They even built some fortifications around the city so that none could go, none could come, and then they began to starve. As we'll see more in a moment, 
the people literally turned to cannibalism. They actually ate their kids and ate each other, and, and it was a horrific time. The Romans came in, the city was overthrown, the temple raised to the ground, the Jews were slaughtered, over a million Jews, and, and uh, they were just thrown over the wall in heaps, and the stench was uh, unbearable. This all happens exactly according to prophecy, and, and these three verses are talking about what is taking place here. So let's look at these three verses again. And histori- a historian named Josephus also provide some details that align with the scripture here. So let's look at verse 1 again. Uh, the, the, the phrase, open thy doors. This is talking about judgment is coming, and it's going to be, first of all, an unavoidable judgment. You might as well open your doors. Now, if I tell you, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, are you going to open your doors? Uh, the instinct is, bar the doors, and hide in the basement, and get the 12 gauge, or whatever you do. Uh, and, and, and yet this is kind of backwards to that. He says, open your doors. In other words, you might as well open your doors and have it over with because this is unavoidable. There's no locking it out. There's no running from it. There's no hiding from it. You might as well just get it done. Open thy doors, he says. O Lebanon, that the fire may devour thy cedars. It was an unavoidable judgment that was coming. And it was also a sweeping judgment that's described here in these three verses. From north to south, from Lebanon to Bashan to Jordan, it was to be a sweeping top-to-bottom house cleaning. I got a little map. It'll be hard for you to see on the screen. Maybe you've got a map in your Bible. But you've got at the very top, you can hardly see it, two little words at the very, very top of that map says the Lebanon Mountains. Then you come down a little bit, you see Dan, and then below that you see Bashan. Maybe you can read it, maybe you can't. Can anybody read it? Okay, hey, way to go, we've got one. Uh, then you've got, you come down a little bit more, and it says the Jordan River. And again, I, I'm sorry it's so small, but maybe you've got a map like that in your Bible, you can see. But the point is, he's working, he's working top to bottom. This is just giving the, the imagery of this judgment will be thorough, it will be sweeping. It is a top to bottom house cleaning a sweeping judgment. It's an unavoidable judgment, a sweeping judgment. It's also a devastating judgment. The destruction will be great. It says the great cedars will fall. The firs will howl. The mighty spoiled. The mighty oaks. And the, the lush forests, the forest of the vintage, that's the idea of lush, thick, a beautiful forest. It's all coming down. Well, do you remember the, the cedars on Bashan are mentioned in, in the Bible in several other places, uh, but uh, Solomon and, and David needed those cedars to build the temple and to build their houses. And uh, this was an area that looked so beautiful, so lush, so green, and they depended upon this area. This was part of their might, part of their strength. And when the Romans wanted to just cut you off at the knees, the Romans wouldn't just take captives uh, the Romans would oftentimes just leave nothing behind. You've got fields, we'll sow them with salt. Nothing will grow again. You've got uh, fortresses, we will raise them to the ground, turn them into just gravel. Oh, you've got forests with cedars, and you think you can rebound from this, and, and, and you can sell these, because they used to sell them all around the world, the, the, the port. They would go out from, that, from the port all, all over the world. Oh, uh, you think you can do this? No, no, no. We're going to raise it all to the ground. 
the great cedars, the mighty, the mighty oaks, all brought down. And there's going to be a cry and a wail when this judgment takes place, the prophet says. Even the firs and the oaks will howl, it says. How does a fir tree howl? Well, in a sense, you ever cut down a big tree? It doesn't, it doesn't make no sound. It makes a sound. There's a creaking and a groaning and a, and you know, and when you multiply that by a whole forest as they're just moving through bulldozing, uh, it was as if the forest itself was wailing for the great destruction that was coming. The young lions also roaring. Uh, many other scriptures back up the fact that this area was populated and inhabited by lions. You can look at uh, the Psalms and Proverbs and other places in, in the Old Testament. Uh, this was a very lush place for animals, and the young lions are, are now looking at their habitat being destroyed. They're roaring, and everything is unsettled. But most importantly, the shepherds will howl, it says. The fleeing shepherds will howl. They will wail. They will cry out. Who are these shepherds? It's the leaders. Why will they cry out? Their glory is spoiled. Their land, their hope, their opportunity, their future, everything that they had hoped for in throwing off Rome and having our own thing. And, and yeah, we, we're, we're, we're going to be independent. It's all gone as they are fleeing and wailing. Why? Well, because it, they rejected their king. That's what, what verses 4 through 14 are going to tell us. They rejected their, th their king. They thought that they were wiser. They thought that they were okay. They squandered their only hope of salvation when he came and offered them himself by, uh, by the, the whole he was rejected. By a few individuals he was received. Oh, it's so important to understand when Jesus comes calling, you need to be humble enough to receive. We'll see more about that as we move on, but let's look at this matter number two of the condemnation of the faithful shepherd. Verses one through three kind of start with the judgment, and then verses four through 14 tell us why that judgment took place. The Messiah came, and the Messiah was condemned. Verse 4, thus saith the Lord my God, feed the flock of the, of, slaughter, of the slaughter, whose possessors slay them, and hold themselves not guilty. And they that sell them say, blessed be the Lord, for I am rich. And their own shepherds pity them not, for I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord. But lo, I will deliver the men every one into his neighbor's hand, and into the hand of his king, and they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. And I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. And took unto me two staves, one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. We'll stop there for a moment and say this is a picture of the Messiah coming in to feed the flock. He has two staves, one called beauty and one called bands, and we'll look at that in a moment as well. And he offers food and nourishment, and yet they say, we don't want any part of it. Is this not what Jesus did? Jesus came and he offered to teach and to feed. And he actually fed literally and he fed uh, spiritually. He gave them real food, five loaves and two fishes. Uh, he did that twice. And uh, he also fed them spiritually. He said, I am the bread of life. And, 
and he that comes to me will never hunger. Uh, he said, I, I, who, who comes to me won't, won't thirst. And many came to him and believed on him and were saved and, and were satisfied with the bread of, of life and the water of life, Jesus Christ. So yes, there were some that he was able to feed, but on the whole, they rejected him. Now, it's important to note that the prophet Zechariah, it appears to be, he is directed here to act out this scene. This is something that happened often with the prophets in the Old Testament. They would not just write things down. Sometimes they would. And sometimes they would be told, write it down in a scroll. And other times it was, shout it from a housetop. And other times it was, act it out. Anybody thinking of Ezekiel right now? Anybody thinking of Ezekiel? Okay, that is a weird story. And I'll let you get into that later. There's some, uh, there's some, some curious stuff in the Bible. But Ezekiel was not told to shout it from the housetops, he was told to act out a play. And I'll let you read that one on your own time, but he has to make this whole scene, uh, this is Jerusalem, and, and he kind of has to build this whole, this whole scene and, 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 and show the people, you know, what God's told him, and there was even some dung involved. Yes, he said, God says, I want you to know what I think of your sin. Manure, I mean, uh, poor Ezekiel. I'm glad I get to preach the word and don't have to act out something crazy. Uh, but sometimes God asks the prophet, I want you to act something out. And so that's what happens here. And he's going to, in verses 4 through uh, 14, he's going to act out the part of the faithful shepherd, the Messiah. And then 15 through 17, he's going to switch roles, quick costume change, and, and he has to act out the part of the foolish shepherd, which is the Antichrist. So Zechariah has a lot going on to try to teach the people there what is coming in this prophecy. So first of all, he says, feed the flock of slaughter. So he, he, he becomes in the role of, of, a, of a shepherd and he feeds the people as Jesus would do. Jesus would come and feed them. Now it says that they're, they're referred to as the flock of slaughter. That's an interesting phrase. In other words, they were destined to be butchered, slaughtered. I was preaching in Iowa, and they said, hey, uh, we want you to, to go over to the so-and-sos after the service. They're going to feed you. I said, great. Uh, and it, this was a Iowa pig farm, and it was, it was something to behold. You smelled it before you ever saw it. Uh, it was, and then we went through it to the house. Thankfully, the house was upwind. Yeah, upwind. It smelled better at the house, all right. Uh, but I went by all of these, these hogs that were all destined for slaughter. Every last one of them, right? Uh, and yes, we had uh, a, pork, uh, a pork chop for dinner. It was actually pretty good. Um, but the, the, God says, you're going to feed the flock, and this flock is destined to be butchered. However, out of love and mercy and kindness, I want you to feed them first. Not to fatten them up so they taste better later. That's not the idea. It's the idea of God in his mercy says, I want to give them an opportunity. An opportunity to follow the true shepherd. But what do they do? They say, no. Now we're going to come back to the idea of feeding them in verse 7. But uh, let's look at verse 5 jumps into the Rome again, whose possessors slay them and hold themselves not guilty, and they that sell them say, blessed be the Lord. 
Uh, for I am rich, and their own shepherds pity them not. What is this about? Well, we're talking about the possessors of them. That would be Rome. When Rome comes and wipes them out because they reject the shepherd, uh, they are going to slay them and justify themselves in the process, saying we're not guilty. Now, again, this dovetails with history because that is exactly what Rome did. Rome butchered them with their head held high, believing that they had done a service to humanity. Why? Because they were putting down a rebellion. This was a revolt. This is illegal. We are doing what we're supposed to do. This is lawful for us to come in and wipe them out. And so they did it and declared themselves not guilty, just as Zechariah said they would. And they go on and they mock. And this also took place with Rome. They sold them. So some got killed and some got sold. That's how it always was. Uh, you, you wouldn't kill everybody. You, you'd want to make a little bit of money. And so they'd sell the, some that had a strong back into slavery. And you see that there. Uh, they, and they sell them, say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich. Now here comes the mockery. They kill them, they sell them, they get riches, and they say, oh, bless the Lord, I'm rich. As in other words, like, hey, your God sold you guys out. We're doing God a favor too. It was mocking. And there's no pity whatsoever. And no pity, it says, even from their own shepherds. As they're all fleeing for their lives, and as every man for himself, even their own shepherds would not pity them. And the next verse says, no pity even from the Lord himself, but rather he would deliver them. That verse there says, uh, I keep losing my place, uh, their, their shepherds will pity them not, for I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, but lo, I will deliver every man, everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king, and they shall smite the land, and I will not deliver them. All right, so he says, I will not pity them, and here's what I will do, I will deliver them into the hand of their neighbor and the hand of their king. Well, who was that? Their neighbor was Rome, and their king was Caesar. Now, how do we know this? The Jews were, were, were under Roman rule. They did not have their own king. King Herod and all that, that's over with. They had no king. Uh, and you remember in John 15, 19, 15, they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And now you look and you say, Yeah, God said that that would happen. Right there in the text. I will not pity them. I will deliver them to his neighbor, that is Rome, and into the hand of his king, that is Caesar, they shall smite the land. Now, why is this so important? You know, folks, there's a lesson here for us. There's a lot of lessons here. But one of the reasons they crucified Jesus is because they said he's going to get us in trouble. Do you remember that? He's teaching crazy stuff, and there's all these people following him, and, and this is getting out of hand, and we're supposed to be good little boys and girls. We don't want to make the Romans mad. We're supposed to be good little boys and girls and do whatever we're told to do. Go when they say go. After all, hey, they're being nice enough to let us have our religion so let's not wreck a good thing jesus is going to get us all destroyed slaughtered so what we're going to do is this we're going to kill him 
and serve Caesar and life will be good. God says it's actually going to happen just the opposite. Because you killed him and served Caesar, I'm going to give you over to your neighbor and to your king and he'll smite you and I will not deliver you. You know, folks, when we try to protect ourselves our way, it doesn't work. We can get so scared. Well, let's not make anybody upset. Let's be good little boys and girls. Let's make sure that we don't want to upset anybody. And you know, let's make sure that we're, we're dotting every I and crossing every T and whatever. Hey, I want to be a good citizen. I want to be a good uh, American. But most importantly, I want to be a good child of God, a good Christian. There are times when you have to say, uh, I can't do it this way. I've got to follow the Lord Jesus. Some did follow, some did not. Verse 7 gets back into the imagery of feeding the flock. Let's jump to verse 7. I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. And I took unto me two staves, one I called beauty and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. So he did manage to feed some of the flock. Who did he reach? He says clearly he reached the poor. The New Testament confirms this. Who did Jesus reach when he came? Some fishermen, some blind, some, some uh, people who were cast aside begging on the side of the streets and he would touch people and heal people and he fed people and saw people saved. You know, you don't feed rich people. You, know, you feed poor people who are starving. It was the poor who came to him. It was the desperate who came to him. It was adulterers and, and tax collectors who were deceivers and malefactors. You know, he, he reached the poor of the land. That's exactly what this book says he would do. And he fed them. The prophet takes up two staves. Zechariah takes up two staves. One he calls beauty, one he calls bands. You know, the beauty has the idea of grace, showing tender care, mercy, compassion. And the bands has the idea of unity, brotherhood, and the protection of it. The protection that is needed. And from what I understand, shepherds would sometimes have two staves. One with a crook, and you'd use that to get the, the, the lamb out of the crevice of the rock or whatever and, and, and bring them out. And, and then the other one might be a little bit more of a defense weapon uh, to, to knock that wolf. Uh, or, or it might be to help to guide and steer. We're going this way. We're going that way. It's for unity, for protect, protection. So here's these two staves. And is this not uh, picturesque of how Christ was at his first coming? Merciful, gracious, lifting up the wounded, opening the eyes of the blind, and working these miracles of healing. This is what he did. He, he had this exact imagery in his, in, his, in his daily ministry. But also the bands of unity, okay? And, and he, he had to get a little firm at times as well. So you see this. We have to move quickly for time. Verses 8 and 9. Three shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Then said I, will, I will not feed you, that that dieth, let it die, and that that is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest every, uh, eat, every one the flesh of another. He came with his two staves. He ministered, he fed, the poor received him, and were satisfied. But then he was rejected, he was crucified. 
And then there was judgment just about 40 years later. Now, what does verses 8 and 9 teach us about this giving over? Well, there's three shepherds particularly called out who were uh, cut off. And these three shepherds, we believe, refer to three different categories of shepherds. Maybe the rulers and kings, and the priests and prophets, and then maybe the scribes and teachers. And, and God always holds the leadership uh, responsible. There are many false teachers today, just like there was many false teachers back then, and nobody's getting away with anything. The shepherds he starts with first, he cuts them off, says that he loathed them. In other words, they just made him sick. Day after day, he made, he made him sick as he's having to hear these shepherds with their, their horrible, uh, undoctrinal whatever and their lack of leadership. But worse, they abhorred him. They abhorred him. Those who should have led people to him abhorred him. So there's no more provision. They're left to die. But not just that. It says that they will eat every man the flesh of his neighbor, the flesh of another. And Josephus the prophet confirms this. When the siege took place, and of course they had this inflated population because of the pilgrims coming for Passover, they actually did have cannibalism as they were trying to fight for survival. Verses 10 and 11 talks about a covenant broken. Let's look at that and, and, and draw some conclusions here. Verse 10, I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant which I had made with all the people. And it was broken in that day, and so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. The poor of the flock, they believed and they knew it was the word of God. But the others know. He has to break his staff called beauty. Well, what does this mean? God broke his word? God broke his covenant? Now, what he's showing you this is he's showing you a visible illustration of the fact that their, their part they did not keep. The blessings were forfeit and the curses were embraced. Well, God broke his word. No, actually, when judgment comes down, it should be a very faith-building time. Sometimes people lose their faith in God when judgment comes down. It should not cause anyone to lose their faith in God. It should be very faith-building because God does not just keep his promises of blessing. He keeps his promises of judgment as well. He breaks the staff called beauty and lets the judgment go. And the poor of the flock, they believe. Verses 12 and 13, this is so important. Now he asks them about his worth. The prophet, symbolizing the Messiah, asks, how much am I worth to you? Verse 12, I said unto them, if ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, as Zechariah, cast it to the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. What does all that mean? That is so important because this is symbolizing exactly what would take place just a few years later when Jesus came and presented himself as the Messiah to the people and was rejected. They say 30 pieces of silver, that is the price of a slave, Exodus 21, 32. The price of a slave. Zechariah is worth the price of a slave. The Messiah is worth the price of a slave. Every detail of this prophecy in verses 12 and 13 was fulfilled. I did not put it in your notes, but in Matthew 27, if you want to look along, you can see in Matthew 27, 3, then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself. 
and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned, and that I have betrayed innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for, uh, to put them into the treasury because it's the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Do you see all those details, how they tie together? Zechariah, I'm not sure if Zechariah knew everything he was doing and why he was doing it, but he did what he was told. Zechariah says to the people, how much am I worth? Ah, the price of a slave. Here you go, 30 pieces of silver. Okay, Lord, what do I do now? Lord says, go into the temple. There's a potter in there. Throw it at his feet. Okay. Can you imagine Zechariah? (laughs) Here's this potter. This guy just works for a living. He goes to the temple to pray and worship whatever he does in the temple, you know, and all of a sudden, here comes Zechariah. Here it is. (laughs) What in the world? I have no idea. Maybe God clued him in on what all this means, but now, you know, fast forward a few years and we know exactly what it means. Judas would sell Jesus out to the priest and betray him for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. He would then think better of it, and the Bible says repent himself. He changes his mind, says, oh no, what have I done? What have I done? And he runs into the temple and sees those very men. He says, this is wrong. And they said, we don't care. You see to that. And he says, oh, I can't have this. And he throws it down. And they say, well, we can't have this blood money in the temple. Quick, scurry it up. Grab it. Grab it. What are you going to do with it? There's a potter right over there. It was a field for sale. Buy it. We'll just bury dead people there. Oh, we'll bury, bury strangers there. <clears throat> and they do it. All those little details were there in Zechariah chapter 11, predicting what would happen with the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, people who say, Oh, the Bible is not true. Oh, the Bible has so many inconsistencies, blah, 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 blah. Folks, you look at just just the book of Zechariah alone lays out so much that we already know has happened. It gives us faith to know that the things that have not yet happened will also come to pass. And then in verse 14, unity is destroyed the bands of unity, brotherhood, and protection are broken when that last staff is broken. Verse 14 says, Then I cut asunder mine other staff, even bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So the staff called beauty, Zechariah broke it. <clears throat> the staff called bands, he broke it, saying, You're going you're gonna to reject your Messiah. He's going to be no more than the price of a slave to you. And you will no longer have these two staves, these two staves of protection. I will scatter you. There's no more unity, no more brotherhood. They are scattered. And we saw that. That has been literally fulfilled. What's some application for us today? You know, they rejected the Lord as their Savior. And the obvious question I have to stop and ask right now is, have you rejected yours? Do you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior? Is he your Messiah You may have grown up in church. Jesus is your parents' Jesus, your parents' Savior. He needs to be your Savior. You may have not grown up in church, and you may have thought, ah, I've just, uh, my secular mind just cannot come to faith, and I'm too scientific and too well-educated and so forth. Hey, let me tell you, the Bible shows 
This stuff isn't as uneducated as, as some have made it out to be. Prophecies in great detail coming true <clears throat> to the letter. Have you rejected him? How long will you spurn the loving shepherd who deals with you with beauty and bands? Grace and protection. There comes a time when those bands break. There's a final call. Jesus came. He presented himself. <clears throat> he fed the flock. He fed the poor. But ultimately, that was their final call. They had no idea when they rejected him that day and said, our king is Caesar. They had no idea that they had chosen on that day to be killed by Caesar within 40 years. There was a final call. I, I as an as a evangelist, would often sing the song, God's Final Call, in my meetings as we traveled around. I want to remind you of the words of that song. It says, someday you'll hear God's final call to you to take his offer of salvation true. This could be it, my friend, if you but knew God's final call. God's final call. How can you live another day in sin, thinking someday with Christ you'll begin? Oh, will you hear above the world's loud din God's final call? God's final call. And the song finishes with this third stanza. If you reject God's final call of grace, you'll have no chance your footsteps to retrace. All hope will then be gone and doom you'll face. Oh, here is call, God's final call. These Jews rejected the Lord Jesus and had no idea this was their final call. And how tragic would it be for someone to leave church having sat under preaching from God's word and say, no, not today, Jesus, not today. A friend of mine tells the story. He preached the message and a teenager raised his hand in the invitation indicating that he was not saved and, 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 and knew that he needed to be saved. And, and so uh, after the sermon was over with, the preacher went and talked to that young man. And he was just so in the angst of decision, do I receive the Lord, do I not? And at that moment, his friends arrived in their car to pick him up. And they had already got his meal, large, large soda, large fry, a burger and all this. And come on, let's go, I gotta go. I'll have another chance. I'll, I'll do it later. And he jumped in that car, and that car uh, ended up hitting a train. They tried to get across a train track and, and did not judge it correct. That car uh, got demolished, and all those boys died. And uh, he had, you know, he, he just thought it's another day. I, I got my, my large Coke, my large fry, my burger, and I'm with my boys, and I'll deal with Jesus some other day. He didn't know that that was his final call. And you know, folks, we don't need to presume upon the future either. And if there is someone who needs to, to get this, this matter settled, I would love to talk to you after the service and help you settle this matter with the Lord. We're basically out of time. I want to hit this last point very quickly. There was the cry of the fleeing prophets. There was the condemnation of the faithful prophet. And it ends with a coronation of a foolish prophet. Uh, uh, sorry, shepherd, foolish shepherd. The foolish shepherd in verse... 15 through 17, the Lord said unto me, take unto thee instruments of a foolish shepherd, for lo, I will raise up a, a shepherd in the land which shall not visit those that be cut off, neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that that is broken, nor feed that standeth still. 
And he goes on to describe him. So he says, all right, time to change costumes, Zachariah. It's time for part two or act two in your prophecy. Put down the broken staff, beauty and bands, and put, put on the foolish shepherd costume and pick up the instruments of a foolish shepherd. Doesn't say what they are, but maybe the instruments of a foolish shepherd is uh, a billy club. Maybe he beats his sheep. I don't know. But now he is, he is uh, taking unto him the instruments of a foolish shepherd, with, uh, and now he is, he is jumping ahead in the timeline. Remember how the prophets would see prophecy. They saw it as a panorama of mountaintops. It looked like all those mountaintops are right here. We go from this to this to this to this. But there's oftentimes huge gaps of time, and so he goes from the first coming straight into the second coming, just like that. The Antichrist is this foolish shepherd. The word foolish is also the idea of evil. He's an evil shepherd. He is wicked. This shepherd will rise up. The Bible tells us. You can read about him in Daniel and Revelation and other places. He will rise up. He will gather the entire world to himself. He'll promise peace. He'll be brilliant. He'll be an orator. He'll be a businessman. He'll be military. He'll be, a strat he'll be everything. This guy's going to be amazing. Everyone will come to him. After three and a half years, he will turn on his own. Even the Jews, even Israel will come to him, the Bible says. They will even be deceived. And it says that he will not visit those that are cut off. He'll forsake those who are cut off and those who are young and those who are wounded and those who stand still. What is he going to do with those who stand still, those who stand by his side? He won't feed them either. Here's what he does do. He shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces, uh, those that stand by him faithfully, he'll eat them. In other words, this guy is a monster. He's all about himself and his own agenda. This Antichrist will be a monster. And he is an idol shepherd. The Bible calls him an idol. In other words, he is worshipped. We see that in Revelation. He is worshipped as an idol. One who is like this omnipotent God on earth, this Antichrist. What does the Bible say? Ultimately, he will be destroyed. The last verse says, Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon him, on his arm, and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean, dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. What is this talking about? The arm, the right arm, is always pic a picture of strength and might. He says, I'll take a sword to that arm. You're going to lose all your military strength, all your might, and you're just going to dry up and shrivel. You've got nothing. And the eye is a symbol of intelligence, knowledge, and uh, 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 being able to see the Hebrew word, the Greek word for knowledge uh, also is related to that understanding of uh, idea of, of sight. So he's going to be this genius guy with eyes everywhere and, and, and uh, ultimate knowledge. And God says, I'll poke it out with that sword and that eye will be darkened. The Antichrist cannot and will not have victory. And that should give us great uh, comfort to know that Satan has tried this over and over and over and over throughout the years and he's never been able to make it work. But what is this to us? We won't be there when Antichrist is there. Thank God. The church will be gone. So what is this to us? I'll tell you what it is. Satan is a deceiver. He is able to get the Jews, God's chosen people, to reject the one true Messiah when he's standing right in front of their face. They can touch him, hear him, see him. He can get them to reject him, and yet they'll turn around and embrace this monster who will ultimately destroy them. What does that teach us, folks? 
Satan's deceptions are real. Not everything that looks good and tasty is fit for consumption. He is subtle. He will deceive the world. The Bible says uh, that there is such deception that he will give one day that if God did not see to it, all the Christians would be carried away with it. That's what the word says. Such strong delusion that God will have to help either, even the Christians would be carried away. Israel will follow the Antichrist, and there are many Antichrists today. We've got to be able to discern them. Folks, we need discernment. They said, we can do it ourselves. We don't need Jesus. We want Caesar. They chose Caesar, and ultimately, they chose Antichrist. They will choose Antichrist down the road. Folks, I believe we're being tested today in so many ways who we will choose, who we will trust. May God help us to never sell out the Lord Jesus Christ for Caesar or for some antichrist. We've got to know the word of God. We've got to know his spirit. We've got to know his leading. We've got to be men and women of faith. It is faith that gives true sight. People have said, seeing is believing. No, seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. We walk by faith, not by sight. We need discernment and recognize the only hope of protection from Satan's deception is found in Jesus. Do you know him and are you walking with him? Daily in his word, recognizing you're on the victory side. I don't know all the tests that we will have, but I think about, I think about this passage and as I was looking at this passage, I thought, Wow. Zechariah does this little act. Has no idea that in just a few years, Jesus will come and do the first part of his act. And they will reject him. And 40 years later, it will all come down on their heads. I thought to myself, I don't know what is going to happen 40 years from now. I don't know if I'll be alive 40 years from now, right? Who knows what all is going on? But whatever God is doing in our lives right now, whatever he is presenting us with is of utmost importance. We take so much for granted. We think we got it all figured out and we know how this is going to end, blah, 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 blah. The Jews thought they had it figured. We'll kill Jesus. We'll go to Caesar. What could go wrong? Everything went wrong. They forsook the Bible. Folks, those high priests had Zechariah on their scrolls sitting there all around them. They never picked it up. The 30 pieces of silver, everything, it was right there. Didn't any of it ring a bell? You know what, folks? We have the Bible on our laps, on our bedstands. We have it on our phones. We have it everywhere. Hopefully, we have it in our hearts. But you know, folks, if you're not actively seeking, studying, walking with God, some of the things that, that, that are right there for us to take that will help us in today's decisions, we miss. We end up doing it all on our own. And who knows what we need to do today to protect us from something happening 40 years from now. I don't know. Let's walk by faith, not by sight, and trust the Lord. The message of, Jack, uh, of chapter 11, once again, was this. The Messiah will come attempt to feed his, his flock. Only the poor will follow. Israel as a whole will reject him. He turns them over to destruction, which literally took place 40 years later. While they rejected the true Savior King then, they will one day embrace a demon king later. 
as they embraced the demon Caesar, if you will. He wasn't a demon, but certainly influenced. So what about us? What will we do with the Lord Jesus and his word right now? Are you following the wrong shepherd? Have you accepted the true shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ? And if not, will you do so now? Let's stand prayerfully to our feet, heads bowed and eyes closed. And I, I want to give an invitation, an opportunity. I'm going to invite you to respond this morning. We have a counseling room in the back uh, off of the, uh, by the front door, off the, the foyer. There's a counseling room. It's a place where we can talk about the Word of God and, and answer, hopefully, from His Word, the need of your heart. And if there's someone here who does not know for sure that you have embraced the Lord Jesus as your Savior, your Messiah, you don't want to leave here making the mistake of the Jews, rejecting Him. I would encourage you when the piano plays, just quietly slip out from your seat, go out into the lobby. Uh, Suresh Joshua, our, our usher, would take you to that counseling room. And then I will be right behind. As soon as I dismiss the service, I'll come in and I'll talk to you. If you're a lady, we can get a lady to talk to you. If you're a man, I could talk to you or we can get a man. But this is so important. These folks here thought they were doing it all right. It all made sense. We have no king but Caesar. We don't need Jesus. And it all went so terribly wrong. I don't want to see anybody here miss out on what God has for you. Oh, God can save you today. If you don't know for sure you're saved, as soon as that piano starts playing, you step out, head out to the back. The ushers will tell you where that room is. And let's get that matter taken care of. And if you are saved, oh, would you talk to God about keeping your eyes on him, making sure you have the discernment to, 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 to see Satan's subtlety for what it is and keep following Jesus by faith. As the piano plays, you respond to the Lord. opportunity to hear and respond to the word of God. Let's not wait for the final call. Let's, let's make sure that we are, are willingly submitting to him as he calls, we obey. Well, let me ask Brother Martell, would you close us in a word of prayer? And if you are, if you need, need anything, see me afterwards in the back. And tonight at six, we will look forward to being back here for our life groups if you can make it.